0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton
1: Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111.
2: Good morning, sports fans. Good morning, business fans. And good morning, statistics fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, the show where three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, a professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. We're here to talk about the world of sports, and of course, we talk about it from a statistical perspective, and then of course, we're here at the Wharton School, so we like to relate it to problems in business. But this isn't just about Shane and me talking this morning, and of course, the first half hour is always what caught our eye in sports, but this is about you, the listener, and you joining in. So please call us at one 844 wharton That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And I hope all of you follow us on Twitter, because I've been tweeting a lot lately. We're at at Moneyball. So Shane, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. How's it going? Well, normally I'd say what caught our eye on sports, and I'd throw it out to you, and I'd list a bunch. But... Given you're staring at me with this Red Sox hat on, yeah, the pain that I am absorbing... Big night last night. It, well, I, so I want to ask you a question, but it's also from a statistical perspective, but it's also sports perspective. So let me just recap for our fans here on Wharton Moneyball what happened in the Yankees game last night, and then quickly what happened in the Red Sox game last night. So in the Yankees game last night, the Yankees were winning 6-5 to five going into the ninth. Two outs in the ninth against the Orioles. They're ready to win the series. Dalen Batances is on the mound. Man on first. Manny Machado hits a two-run home run walk-off. Okay. So they lose 7-6. to six. Wait, wait. We'll get to some, st- uh, some statistics. He does and do metric. that on, on occasion. Well, yeah. yeah, he does. The Red Sox were losing going into the ninth, tied in the ninth, and now win the game in A very long game, actually, 19 innings. Now, that's a massive swing. Remember, Yankees are winning going Mm -hmm. into the ninth. Red Sox are losing. Would have been a a one-and-a-half game lead. Now it's a a three-and-a-half game lead. So what I wanted to ask you from a statistical perspective is, is every game really independent? Like, is there ever a game worth more than a game? Like, so from the Yankees' point of view, let's do play a little amateur psychology here. This is another blown save by the bullpen. And just to give you some mm-hmm. shots, sh- Shane, before you answer, if I told you which of the following two teams had a better record, which would it be? One team has scored 717 oh. runs in the season. The other team has scored 656. So we're math guys, Shane. Which number is bigger, 717 or 656? 717. Good, good,
3: good. You give me some softballs to start out the yes, morning. I like yes. that. I like gotta that. Got to
2: warm us up and got to warm our fans up and call one eight four four 844 Maybe you have a stat for us, too. Which one is a smaller number, 578 or 580? Uh, 578. Yes, yes. yes. That one's harder, but yes, I, I still got it. They're still close, right. Yeah. Well... The Yankees have scored more runs than the Red Sox by sixty over sixty and have given up fewer runs. And so and they've How got does a, that feel, by the way, to finally
3: be on the wrong side of the Pythagorean formula, man? I mean the Yankees for
2: years So could just our listeners look I of course Host the show with you every week. I know what the Pythagorean formula is. But could you also say to our listeners, why did I not randomly pick these stats? Why are these informative stats related to record? And tell our listeners what the Pythagorean formula is. I mean, for
3: obviously, I mean I, I think I think even the most casual sort of statistical person would realize that runs are relatively predictive of wins. They in fact are what you have to accumulate in order to win. And so, you know, the the kind of historical sort of, you know, the best predictors of, like, a winning percentage are going to be the number the number of runs you scored and the number of runs you allowed. And, in fact, there's this formula called the Pythagorean formula um, that relates those two to each other. So it's, it's basically about predicting the number of wins you get as a function of the number of runs scored and the number of runs allowed. Obviously, in any given season... Some teams are going to, quote-unquote, outperform their Pythagorean formula. They're going to have more wins than you would expect, given the number of runs scored and runs allowed. And some teams are going to have less runs than, wins than you would expect, given the number their number of runs scored and runs allowed. For like a decade, maybe 15 years, the Yankees consistently outperformed... And, of, of course, there's one formula. Hall of
2: Famer, soon-to-be Hall of Famer, that was the cause of that, and that's Mariano Rivera. Mariano Rivera. Literally I mean, one so, so man.
3: So the one way in which I think it was kind of predictably teams differ from that Pythagorean formula is bullpen. Right. Bullpen it, often is kind of the the, the now, way in which teams is Isn't it are, a little
2: surprising to you? Like, if I had told you—forget what the numbers said, whatever. If I told you one team has Aroldis Chapman, Robertson, Kaylee yeah, and, so and Dalen ridiculous. Like if I told yeah. you that, I mean the Yankees no, no, were on paper is a pretty darn good bullpen. Yeah, on yeah. paper it's a pretty darn good bullpen. Yeah. bullpen. But just to give you an example. I, I don't. I actually didn't know the number of blown but I know Dalen Betances' win loss record now is three and six. Yeah. So that's all. I mean that's not a good number. As you know, Chapman is essentially benched. Yeah. And so I was just trying to bring up that it seems to me. So back to my is a, is a run is a win ever worth more than a win? Is there anything like, obviously you'd rather be one and a half back than three and a half back. But does this seem like now a very large—I understand there's only 30 games to play. You could say 3.5 is a large number with 30 to play. But doesn't it seem like this was a massive shift for the Red Sox, who were losing in the ninth, and a massive shift for the Yankees, who were winning in the ninth? Or, you know what, they're going to lace them up today. One win's a win. And how would a statistician look at this if one wanted to look at any carryover effects? Well, I mean, the way you'd look at that is you could try
3: and fit a model where you try and look at the essentially the autocorrelation of, of winning— um, and would, I would you
2: look at specific games? Like in my case, close losses or like could. extra inning oh, right. wins. Maybe subset out those games. Right? Yeah, you could break it out into
3: sort of like you know, come up with some kind of threshold for heartbreaking loss or, or, or inspiring win. However, ad hoc way you do that, and then look at you know how they do in the the week to follow. What following do you think? That. What do you
2: think we'd find? I'm just interested I don't in your opinion. I, don't,
3: I honestly don't think you would find much. I don't. I, I mean, I, I I put this in the same category as clutchness in the sense that. I think clutch or, like, I think both clutch and the kind of momentum, either positively or nakedly, from a big game. Notice, fans, here on one Moneyball,
2: it wasn't Eric Bradlow yeah. that brought up momentum. It was Shane sh- Jensen. He's throwing me a bone here. I, lo-
3: I love you, man. I'm going to throw it out there. Momentum is a thing. It's just so subtle that I don't think you're going to pick
2: it up. Well, let me ask you something. Let's, Since we're statisticians, we do hypothesis testing yeah. all the time. I'm going to come up with the opposite hypothesis, but just for the Red Sox. Let's imagine now they're moving on to another series, which they likely are soon. They've used up a ton of pitchers. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean... So if anything, you could argue the data, the statisticians, forget momentum, forget how you feel. In argument, they should actually potentially have a slightly lower winning percentage. Yeah,
3: I mean, mean, their game just went 19 innings. They're going to be tired. I mean, so so I think that, yeah, how tired they are and how many pitchers they've gone through, etc. For the Red Sox specifically, I think that factor dominates any kind of psychological positive boost that they will get out of the game last night.
2: Well, so given we're on baseball, I want to stay with baseball for a little bit, if you don't mind, yeah. it's, it's, these have all caught my sports. And by the way, for those listeners out there that say, don't these guys realize the NFL season is starting tomorrow? And of course... Mr. Patriot over here, Hi, Professor I, I Jensen realize it. realizes it, and just I'll throw you a bone. Of course, this is the five-time world champion Patriots that we're right, playing right. tomorrow. Just to be clear to they everybody, had to move the banners around the stadium to make room. Yeah, there you go. Uh, is that true? <laughs> yeah, ah, very exciting. Well, listen, I do know that, but of course, in our eight thirty hour, we have Aaron Schatz, one of the world's experts on NFL uh, football outsiders, etc. And at nine o'clock. Uh, we have Bill Conley coming on to talk about NCAA. So I'm just holding off on, yep. uh, I know oh, no. the we're college gonna, football season started. We're going to really get into it with, the, with football We're, we're going to get into it. So I wanted to bring up another MLB stat that was interesting. And, and tell me if the following statistics and math as an approximation is okay. So not last night, the night before, um, a guy uh, on the Diamondbacks, I believe, J.D. Martinez, um, hit four home runs in a game. Wow. Okay? Yeah, now see, that's a wow. That's a wow. I remember when Mike Cameron, who's not particularly, well, he's a fine play, baseball player, but I remember him doing that like 15 so, years so ago. So if you had to guess how many times that's been done in MLB history, what would be your guess about how many times somebody has hit four home runs in a game? Ten, maybe? Yeah, it's 18, but you're not off. Oh, wow, you're, you're okay. By, no, by I was my, thinking, yeah, basically it was, I thought, it, in my mind it happens about once a decade. Well... I guess it happens about twice a decade. It happens about twice a decade. And by the way, there was a stretch, by the way. I want to get to a probability question Mm -hmm. for you in a second. But there was a stretch, by the way, in the American League where between 1959 and 2002, it hadn't been done at all. It hadn't been done for 43 consecutive years in the American League, by the way, which has a DH. So that's interesting. Could the following math we always talk about is something a one in a hundred event, a one in a thousand event, a one in ten thousand event, a one in a hundred thousand event? I did a little kind of envelope math, just want to see if you think this is reasonable or maybe it's not reasonable. Okay? Let's imagine that someone is a 40-home-run person. I'm just making yeah. – that, that's a good number, but that's, let's imagine that. Yep. So that means they hit a home run one out of every 15 at-bats based on a 600-at-bat season. Okay? So I just took one out of 15 times one out of 15 times one out of 15 times one out of 15. In other words, there's a one in fif- – let's assume independence, that the hitting these home runs are independent. So that each at-bat, they're independent. Let's yeah. imagine you only get four at-bats in a game, which yeah. may not be true either, but let's imagine that for a second one 15th to the 4th is about 1 out of 50,000. Okay. Just to give yep. an idea of where we are, yep. okay? So I just wanted to get since many of our listeners like you and me also, you know, a lot of times we don't want to fit fancy statistical models, we want to just do some envelope like calculations. How far off do you think my, like is 1 in 50,000? All I did just well, to you have again to do I listen- another
3: envelope calculation where you calculate the number of gate opportunity, you know, cuz well, we kind of have a denominator yeah, yeah. for what's actually happened.
2: Yeah, yeah. So all I've said, I haven't counted, by the way, a different way to compute it would just be to say it's happened 18 times how many player games yeah. have been played that's a just different compute- calculation
3: because you, your your probability calculation was conditioned on you were you were only kind of focusing on the subset of games player games where the player was already a, a an elite home run hitter
2: yeah 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 so I'm probably way overestimating it by yeah. saying it's a 115th person because you know most people aren't hitting home runs at a 1 in 15 pace though counter
3: argument maybe this is you know I mean, Probably these four home run games come from, like, a particular pitcher-batter combination that, like, you know, you know it could be something about that, that particular pitcher-batter combination where that batter does kind of have that pitcher's number that game or something like that. that You know, one out of 15, even if they, they, it may not be
2: the right kind of per at-bat odds. For that particular player game. Yeah, by the way, it, it it might be, by the way, I didn't look at this, I should have. My guess would be, I'm hoping, by the time he was up the fourth time, it's probably not the same starting pitcher in that's you know, given all four home runs. Presumably, they
3: say. have to face at least multiple
2: at pitchers. At least multiple pitchers. Pitchers. By the way, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. Um, just to give you some other relative statistics so, um, how many times, how many perfect games do you think have been thrown in Major League history? Oh, that's
3: probably around the same scale, right? Something uh, see, like 50 or something that's what I was like going like to ask that. you. That's yeah. the point. It's yeah. 23. So just okay. to be clear,
2: not, not that this is necessarily. No, but I mean you There put are this... more perfect games than there are for home run They're games.
3: They're both really impressive achievements. Very say, rare and very impressive
2: these achievements. These are small numbers, and you and know I don't want to make a difference between How many eight.
3: no-hitters have there been? Is that?
2: Well, I'm glad you've asked me that because our producer Matt Datz has given me that number too. 273. Wow. Two hundred and seventy-three no hitters. So, uh, basically, well, let's think about it. Let's say there's two a year, three a year yeah, for ninety I, years of baseball. Well, right? right. No, no. I'm saying that's always been my sense yeah. of the number. You I get mean, like, certainly
3: more, more uh, a couple times a year. I agree. Um, it's just amazing to me that uh, a perfect game is basically ten times as
2: or li- less likely than a uh, no-hitter. Well, so that's another interesting... See, this is, by the way, this is how I, I hope our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, and again, this is Eric Bradlow, I'm a professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor Shane Jensen from the statistics department. We're here on Wharton Moneyball, Sirius XM Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And if you want to join the conversation, what caught your eye, uh, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. What I hope our listeners here are appreciating, Shane, is the way kind of static assistants kind of look at things maybe a little differently than others. Like what you caught your eye wasn't just that home run, four home run games, and perfect games are the same, but perfect games, last time I checked, are no hitters. Yep. So they're a subset of them. So there's 273 no hitters, and less than one tenth of those yep. are actually perfect games. So right. That's- and
3: I mean, obviously, we can all recognize a perfect game is harder than a no hitter. Yes. It's, you know, it's a particularly special case of it. That said, I, I would not sort of say that, like, oh, you know, given that you have the skills to throw a no-hitter, all you really have to do is just not walk anybody in that game either, right? Or hit a batter. Or hit a batter. Or yeah, have mean, an
2: error happen.
3: Sure. So, no, no I'm just saying. I, and actually, that 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 I would be interested in digging into the data, to sort of, like, how many of those no-hitters that weren't perfect games were not perfect games because of a walk versus, like, an error, Right. You know, how, you know, how much of
2: it's sort of like, to a certain extent, randomness within the pitcher's control well, versus As you outside know, if it, it gets to be the control. seventh or eighth inning and a guy has a perfect game, you will see the fielders. I mean, if you've ever seen guys fly around a baseball field to try to catch a ball. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I you know. Oh, that's got to be the
3: tensest thing, one of the tensest things in baseball. Like, to please be like, don't hit the to ball and they should stop hit- with like two outs in the ninth of a perfect game. Ugh. I mean, to be the pitcher, has got to be kind of
2: pressure, yeah, too. But, you know. so, so, staying on our MLB track, continuing down my list of what caught my end sports, so what would you say is a reasonable, like, for a team, what's a good winning streak in Major League Baseball? Like, you know, what's a pretty impressive win? I'm not saying the greatest of all time, but what's an impressive winning streak? If, I, I'm always impressed if teams can uh, put together, like, two series in a row where they uh, yeah, sweep. six games, maybe yeah, six, seven, seven games. Right. Suppose I told you, right now in baseball, the Cleveland Indians have won 13 straight. Isn't that, that impressive? That is incredibly impressive. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. let me give you another one. At the same time right now, active, the Diamondbacks have a 12 game hitting, 12 game winning streak. So, <laughs> you know, this is again what catches my eye in sports because <laughs> We have two teams. We have an American League team and a National League team. They're both on what you and I would consider. I mean, whether you want to take one half raised to the 12th power and say that's the odds yeah. of a team winning 12 in a row or one half to the 13th power. And just to give, let's see, just to some back of envelope. I know one half to the fifth is one out of 32. So one half to the 10th is going to be like one out of a 1,000. And so one ha- so these are basically one out of 4,000 and one out of 8,000 type of. Of odds types of streaks mm-hmm. yeah. and so by the way just to give you a reference um and you know we just talked about something that might be one in 50,000 so by the way that's I mean I'm not saying a 13 game winning streak isn't impressive I'm not saying a 12 game winning streak isn't impressive but just for our listeners out there that's a lot more common yeah than someone hitting four home runs in a yeah. game I mean a yeah, lot yeah. more yeah. common yeah I just but like it, to give an idea of relative uh, odds yeah
3: so, but, you know, the, the odds, the probabilities do really drop from there. You know, because when Oakland won, it's 20 games in a row. That was pretty... Pre-
2: well... That, that that would be relative. Even, well, we can do the math. So let's yeah. just say if 13 is roughly one out of 8,000, right? Yeah. So seven more games is going to be one 128th of that. All right. So now we're taking one out of 8,000 and we're multiplying it by one out of... So now we're talking about one in a million. Yeah, basically one in a million. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a million is. See, that's th- a this big is number. what No, but this is why I love being a statistician, because you compare you say, well, one out of 13th is impressive. One out of 20th is really impressive. How relatively impressive are they? Yeah. Well, one of them's one out of 8000. And, you know, you and I are going to oh, see that's, those that's in right. our lifetime. Yep. Quite common. One out of a million. You don't actually see that often. Well, right, and I mean,
3: with hit streaks, it's the same sort of thing. I mean, we, you know, every season we probably got somebody going into, like, maybe the 20s, 20-game hit streaks 20-game like hit that. streaks
2: are fairly relatively common. Relatively
3: common. We always get excited about them, especially if they're, you know, playing for our team. But, you know, once you start getting into the 30s, then people start really paying attention. If you were to get into, like, the late
2: 30s, early 40s, then all of a sudden ESPN's cutting to every game you're in. But also, just think about what you just said, just for our listeners here. Let's imagine you're at a 40-game hitting streak, which, by the way, would definitely put you in the top 10 of all time. I mean, we know Joe DiMaggio, 56, Pete Rose, 44. By the way, we'll talk about that gap in a second just to show you how impressive that hit streak is. But again, let's just go back to our let's imagine um, your probability of getting a hit in a game. Let's say you're a really good hitter. Let's say it's .75. Is that about three-quarters of the games? Let's say someone gets a a really good hitter gets a hit. That's probably a hit. You'd have to be very good to do that. But let's imagine it's three quarters. So now you're taking you know, three quarters, let's say even from 40 to 56, and let's pretend they're independent, which you and I do not believe they're independent, but let's imagine you're taking three-fourths to the 16th. I mean, I I can't necessarily do in my head what that is, but that's not – I mean, you're even way away from 56 games. You're way – well, here's a way to do it. It's basically one-half to the eighth. So that's somewhere, again, like – one out of you're probably you know eight you're probably like one out of 2 to 300 away from so even conditional on getting to 40 games yeah you, you probably you, you, have only of all less the people than 1% chance of oh, making into 56 much much yeah. less than 1% chance of yeah. making it yeah, yeah. so it, either way i i just it caught my eye that we have a team now with a 13 game winning streak and a team with a 12 game winning streak yeah and what what the other kind of
3: funny <clears throat> Part about that Arizona winning streak—they've won twelve in a row. You said. Or Arizona's in a row?
2: won twelve in a row. Indians in have a won row. thirteen
3: in a row. The Dodgers have lost five in a row. And the Dodgers are still up by, like, 12 games on Arizona. But, but yeah, I think if
2: you remember last year, <laughs> last, uh, was, at one point it was 19 games. So obviously yep. cause the Dodgers actually have lost, like, they've gone, like, 2-9 and nine yep. or 2-10. No, the, and Their the record's looking downright just impressive as opposed to unbelievable And point. by the way, thanks again to our producer, Matt Datz, who's just the wealth of information this morning. The longest hitting streak since 2000. Do you know what it is? The longest hitting streak since 2000. It's oh. a Philly guy. Oh, guy that played for the Phillies. Did Utley have a long hitting streak? But no, but your his battery mate, Jimmy Rollins. Oh, really? Jimmy Rollins' thirty-eight game hitting streak. Wow. In two thousand five into two thousand six. Okay, but still thirty-eight games. By the way, so really basically impressive. in the last twenty years, no one's. I don't even know. He he gave us since two thousand. I don't even know if someone's actually he's saying since nineteen eighty seven. <laughs> so wait a second. In the last thirty years, no one has gotten to forty. Who no did, one, who, who, who had the long-hitting streak in 1987? Ah, uh, he's saying in 87. Ah. Uh, by the way, I would have gotten this. Matt, I just want to say, you put this up on the screen. Our producer, Matt that's is so quick, he didn't give me a chance to guess. Hall of Famer. And I remember this hitting streak. It was Paul Molitor. Uh, I remember yep. Paul Molitor's hitting streak of mm-hmm. 39 games that mm-hmm. year. But All right, so now we're back to 1987. 30 years, there has not been a single 40-game hitting streak. Yep. I, I just, again, I know streaks are, are one of those things. And this that, is
3: why, I mean, they sort of look at, I mean, there's a lot of records that will probably never be broken in baseball, but this that, that hitting streak is definitely one of
2: them. That hitting streak, it, I it's just, it's just hard to imagine. I just can't that. imagine. But can you also talk about the difference? Because a lot of our listeners are saying, well, you know, there's a one in a million chance. Let's be clear about the difference, though. Can you tell our listeners the difference between saying this particular player is going to hit for 56 games or any player is well, going right. to do this? I mean, because just give our listeners also the order of magnitude difference yeah, that I these mean, two things are saying.
3: No, that's right. <clears throat> I
2: mean, if you want your favorite player,
3: like, you know, I don't know, Derek Jeter or whatever, to have been a 56-game a hitting streak, that the kind of calculation that Eric was doing was actually kind of the appropriate one, because he was just sort of saying, like, take a particular player, what's the chance that they— put together a 56 game hitting streak a particularly good hitter like Derek Jeter um but there's a lot of there's been a lot of particularly good hitters throughout baseball history so if you consider every single player as kind of a potential person that could have done this then all of a sudden you you start multiplying this probability up by the number of kind of opportunities we had exactly. for this to have happened and probably you know there's been you know, of of that kind of a leak, kind of hitter. I mean, there's been hundreds, right? Hundreds, but still,
2: even if you know, still take one I mean, out of the multiply, a mil- multiply. You know. 10 million by, you know, one over 10 million by 100, it's not going to really... <laughs> yeah, so now what Shane's doing for our listeners, he's yeah. computing the expected number that yeah. we would get by just taking the probability of a given player times the number of instances gives you the expected number. And of course, yeah. thanks again to Matt, but this is the one I had mentioned, and the one before Paul Molitor's streak was Pete Rose uh, 44 games in 1978. So now we're back 40 years, and we have one forty four game hitting streak. It just shows you again how rare, and I know Adi's looked at this in his Adi Weiner, our co-host, has looked at this in his Wharton moneyball thing. I think he called it the most statistically um aberrant or, you know, low probability event that has like ever happened in baseball is the, the 56 56th game. game history. Yes. It's yeah. it's like if you look at how many standard deviations it is yep. away from the expected number. And by the way, let yeah. me just say this is one of the things we've had discussions about and I've had it with Adi because you know as we know Adi's now an empirical guy but he's trained as a probabilist I asked him do we really need math anymore like can't we just do this type of thing by massive simulation and I think um, the answer is yes I'm not saying math like the kind we're doing doesn't give you intuition it does but you can do this like you could just simulate a billion player seasons right now and Mm -hmm. see how Mm -hmm. rare all kinds of events are that's right and then you could see which one has the lowest PV value or how many standard deviations away from expectation and then rank order these events yeah, and you can sort of I mean you could
3: do this with your probability calculations too but you could start experimenting I mean you could just kind of I mean, the thing with doing any kind of simulation or probability calculations, you have to kind of decide on a model. So, I mean, for example, you said right off the bat when you started doing these back the end calculations, I'm going to assume that these events are independent. That, like, you know, your chance of
2: hitting, getting a hit in one at-bat is not tied to the previous at-bat or the previous game. By the, the way? Which way game. You've obviously studied baseball a lot more yeah. than I have. Which way would you expect the autocorrelation to go? So let me make two arguments for our listeners. Again, if you want to jump in, please call us at 1 8441. Matter of fact, Matt, put a poll up on, at, at WMoneyball with the following question After hitting a home run, the next at bat, is someone more likely to hit a home run? This is, we'll call it the hot theory, versus I'm less likely to hit a home run. Lots of reasons. I'm not going to use fatigue. You know, man, I had to swing really hard and run around the bases. The pitchers are more careful with you because you've just hit a home run. This is Shane Jensen's day. God forbid, I'm not letting him hit two home runs off of me. So which one, and we'll look this up. Which one do you think? Do you think there's a positive, zero, or negative autocorrelation for home runs on the next at-bat? I think there would be, I would guess there'd be a negative
3: autocorrelation I think the sort of the the strategy of pitchers kind of protecting against another home run or you know basically you know like this guy getting a free pass or something like that you know they're they're gonna be very careful of that hitter the next time through what about and the, i think that swamps the kind of momentum or or the indication you know whatever evidence that this batter is particularly hot this game that the first home run would have
2: Implied. Do you think also—I would I mean, would regression to the mean or mean reversion—like, here's what I mean by that. You know, let's imagine to hit a home run. Let's just pick a number. You have to hit a ball 375 feet. Yeah. So on the last swing that you hit a home run, the true length was 350, and you just got the barrel of yeah. that exactly right. You got the plus 25. But you know what— the next one, you might get the minus twenty five, and so yep. this is not really. In other words, this is the maximum you could have done on your previous at bat, and so of course there is going to be some would mean reversion or regression to the mean, as it's called. In yeah, the and I mean that, with that that's that why
3: we, you know, we would almost want to maybe do this calculation differently uh, for like t- like kind of no doubt type home runs versus you know kind of very very All right, very so- marginal home runs because the marginal home runs again would give as you're sort of implying would give less evidence that the player is is particularly hot or something like that um and therefore maybe the pitchers wouldn't even bother adjusting to him the second time around
2: yeah so i just want to bring up for our listeners what shane has talked about uh here so i came up with a very simple approach let's take a and and this is what matt i hope has put up on at w moneyball he has i see him nodding yes um if you hit a home run, what about the next at bat? Well you've just done two things, which is what good statisticians do. First of all, you said, why is it just one home run and the next at bat? So first of all, maybe it's a longer stretch of time. Yeah. And and statisticians, we like bigger sample sizes. Why am I so focused? Like what's magical about the next at bat? That's yeah. number one. And number two, you said, well, why not why are you just using a binary indicator, meaning You hit a home run, one. You didn't hit a home run, zero. Why don't you use something about the length of the home run? Why don't you increase the information set? As a matter of fact, in the world of StatCast today, why don't you look at something about the launch speed of that home run? Or why don't you look at something like, did you actually hit a home run on a good pitch or a bad pitch? And so could you maybe just spend a minute or two on our show talking about how StatCast allows? Because what I did is, I'll hate to put it this way, I'm living 1970 baseball. I just gave an analysis you could do back in 1970. You're not using the speed of the data. You're not using the location of the pitch. You're not using the size of the ballpark. You're not using the launch angle. You're not using anything except what you could read in a box score. So could you talk maybe just for a second or two about what you, you know, how would advanced analytics help you do a better job? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of a – I think –
3: you know, and this kind of, you know, I, I guess let's take a specific example, like a pitcher deciding on whether or not, you know, that, that a hitter has hit a home run at the previous time he's seen this hitter in the, in the game. And so the pitcher slash, you know, manager deciding whether or not they want to give this guy a free pass or whether they're going to basically treat him like that home run hadn't happened. So it's really kind of about whether how, how consequential or how, you know, important that home run was to sort of their kind of game plan. And that's going to be a. Basically determined by stuff like yeah, how hard he hit it. Basically, so exit velocity for the ball is going to be a big one. And I, I, I'm glad the fact that you pointed out whether or not he hit it on a good or bad pitch. If the if the pitcher knew that he screwed up and basically left, you know, like it was supposed to be a sinker and he left it up in the zone or something like that. Yeah, it's and not that impressive. And the hitter clobbered it out of the park. Well, the pitcher knows. Well, that that was a mistake I made. I'm not I'm I'm not going to make that same mistake again. And so I'm not going to treat this batter any differently. But, but if the pitcher threw the best possible pitch he could have and the guy still nailed it out of the ballpark, then maybe
2: that uh, that's something that gives a pitcher slash manager pause. What about the role that advanced analytics might play? For example, would we expect the probability of hitting a home run, given you just hit a home run, whether it's in the next at-bat, next couple of at-bats, would we expect the role of, since analytics is playing a much bigger role in baseball, as a matter of fact, the whether the pitching coach, the manager in the dugout, can probably get someone to call him and say, look, this is where you hit. You laid the pitch out. Do you think analytics would actually lower the probability that you would hit a successive home run, given now we have so much more information in real time? Do you think it would ever get that, or, or the effect would be so immeasurable that it's hard I, to I know? I think,
3: yeah. I mean, I mean, I think analytics is certainly lowering the odds that, got, you know, is helping pitchers to lower the odds that hitters do particular things. I mean, I mean the analytics is also helping the hitters on the other side. But you know, um but yeah, like having a good analytical report on a particular hitter will help you pitch against him and, and lower his success of all, whatever negative outcomes. I don't think the extra analytics for like a particular event like that given just how random things are still in baseball. Um I don't I don't th- I don't I don't think that will actually have would have a consequential
2: effect and by the way don't don't ever forget our listeners out there what Shane just said despite all the advanced analytics there's still a lot of randomness a ton of of randomness in baseball well this has been the first quarter here of Wharton Moneyball this is Eric Bradley and I'm here with Shane Jensen we're going to take a break in just a second and joining us right after the break is Aaron Schatz so please join us after the break we're going to talk about the NFL our favorite sport Welcome back here to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, business, and statistics collide. This is Eric Bradlow. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Thanks to our sound engineer and associate producer, Danielle Bruno. I have no idea what that music is, but let me just tell you, I'm so much in the mood now to talk to Aaron Schatz about the NFL. This this sounds like the music I would listen to on my way to a tailgate going to the game, so thanks to Danielle for that. And, of course, if you want to join the conversation, I'm sure all of us have, com- have questions about the N- upcoming NFL season for Aaron, please call us at one 844 warton That's 1-844-942-7866. So we're fortunate joining us now on Wharton Moneyball is Aaron Schatz. Aaron is the creator of FootballOutsiders.com, a number of advanced NFL uh, metrics DVOA, DYAR, etc. He actually, this is one of my favorite quotes, Shane, listen to this, the New York Times Magazine referred to him, I can think of no higher compliment to someone in analytics. They called him the Bill James of football. Boy, yeah, I wish they called that's... me the Bill James of professors. And of, unfortunately, Shane, I think he's a compadre of yours. He lives in Natick, Mass. So I think we have an idea who his famous favorite football team might be. But, Aaron, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with my co-host, Shane Jensen.
1: Hey, guys. Good. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yes, uh, I, I am a Patriots fan. I, I fully admit it. I fully admit it. Eventually, they will be bad. It's a I good choice.
3: I mean, you, you really can't them. argue
2: with the choice, to be honest. Not that it was a choice, but it was... It well, was I a, grew up
1: five minutes from yeah. the stadium. Well, yeah. I was
2: about to say, given where you grew up, I mean, now, Shane's a Canadian, but of course, spent a lot of time in Boston. But let me start. I wanted to start here in Wharton, Aaron, we have a thousand questions for you, but I wanted to start with, I'm always one of those people. Forget who I bet on during the Super Bowl and all this. I'm Everybody knows here in Wharton Moneyball, I'm kind of the momentum guy. So, Can you give our listeners a sense? Let's change the clock a little bit. Let's imagine at the end of the Super Bowl, the Atlanta Falcons run the ball, kick that field goal at the end, go up by, I forget if it would have been nine points, whatever the number is. Essentially, with two, three minutes left, the game's over. Falcons win the Super Bowl. Tom Brady's now four and three in Super Bowls, having lost three of his last four. The Atlanta Falcons are the defending Super Bowl champions. How would your outlook for the season change or how did it change due to that two minutes or three minutes or if you'd like maybe the greatest half ever played of football by a quarterback in pressure how does that change the world if you'd like in the NFL going forward
1: it only changes what off-season moves each team might have made and we can't you know you don't know exactly what would have changed and whether they would have made any moves differently but other than that, what happens in the last two minutes of the Super Bowl, I don't think changes. It certainly doesn't change what you would do with a, you know, statistical projection of the season. Right? I mean, statistical projection of the season incorporates, you know, the fact that there's a span of possibilities. And in that span of possibilities are all of the psychological components that come from things like blowing a 28-3 lead in the Super Bowl. So, you know, the projection for the Falcons, when you think of reasons the Falcons might be worse than the average projection, the psychological Super Bowl hangover is definitely, you know, on that list of reasons they might be worse. But you can't predict that that would happen.
3: So, so other
1: other than how it might have changed which players they went to sign or trade for, wouldn't have really changed anything.
3: So this is uh, Shane Jensen. So I, I guess I've most of the projections that I've been sort of seeing have Atlanta dropping down a, a bit relative to what how obviously how the season ended up for them last season, but you're you're I guess you're saying that there's plenty of analytical reasons to drop them down into projections. Anyway, and there's not really any kind of psychological factors going into most of those projections. Right. That doesn't mean
1: psychological factors don't exist. Right. Intangibles are called intangibles because they are intangible. You can't measure them, right? So you can't put them in a statistical projection system. But that doesn't mean they don't exist. It's just that's the reason why statistical projections are actually, you know, the average of a range of projections. But the- there's lots of reason to believe Atlanta will decline. They were 23rd in our ratings in offense two years ago, and first last year, you kinda see some regression
3: there. Especially with uh, a different offensive coordinator.
1: Yep, yep, although it's interesting. We went and looked at the top offenses, that changed coordinators and compared them to similar offenses that didn't change coordinators. And surprisingly, the regression from the offenses that changed coordinators was really no greater than it was from other great offenses that had the same coordinators.
2: Hmm. Hmm. That's very interesting, of course. uh, We hope that the offensive coordinators who are doing well, who join a team that's doing well, say, look, I don't want to say if it ain't broke, don't fix it, but in some sense are looking at what was successful, and so they may not change as much. We would have to look at something like that. But I've got a lot of questions for you. So let me start with the following. Um, matter of fact, and the next three questions, by the way, um, our ho- our co-host Cade Massey says hello. He wishes he could be here. He got caught on a flight from Toronto, so he can't be here today. But he asked, he wanted us to ask you three questions. So the
1: first, it's fir- always Canadians, isn't it? It's,
2: it's always well, Shane's a, Ca- Shane's a Canadian, and he made it to the show today. But of course, he, <laughs> he walked got over from the his extra
1: ten yards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. It's it's that's the extra length of the field. Um so how what is your sense of the role? Obviously a team that a lot of people are predicting to do some real damage this year is the Cowboys How does someone like yourself that looks at the advanced analytics of the game take into account something like, you know, Zeke Elliott? We know, let's assume his six-game suspension continues to be upheld or the courts don't overturn it given the, you know, we're not going to talk on this show about the legality of it because we're not, that's not, we're a sports statistics and business show. But how would you think about the impact of a player like a Zeke Elliott if one were trying to build a line for the games or make projections for the season? How much does that have an impact?
1: Well, the first thing I would do is suggest that people search out Stephanie Stradley's blog if they want to read about the legalities of the case, because she's written about this. She's written about the legal issues in the NFL for years now and points out how unbelievably confusing this whole thing is. Um, Part of the problem with Ezekiel Elliott is that he is a really good example of the interplay of factors in the NFL and the fact that Unlike in baseball, it's very difficult to separate each player from his teammates, right? Because we can tell you how much value there was on plays where Ezekiel Elliott carried the ball last year, and that's sort of how we try to measure his value. But that doesn't talk about the way that having Ezekiel Elliott changed the defensive schemes in such a way that it opened things up for Dak Prescott to throw the ball down the field, or how Ezekiel Elliott putting Dak Prescott into good down-and-distance situations eased Dak Prescott's mind as a rookie and made it easier for him to succeed. And so, uh, you know, you can't exactly quantify how much you're taking out of the offense with Elliott because you don't exactly know what the effect's going to be on the other players. Uh, We don't exactly know how good Darren McFadden will be in his stead. It's still hard to separate what Elliott does from what the offensive line does. But we do try to do that, and based on the stats we have, both Elliott was successful and the offensive line was successful, right? So uh, with a lesser running back behind the same line, you'll still see success, just not as much. It's sort of like when uh, Terrell Davis was with the Broncos, and people used to say, you know, any running back can get 1,000 yards in the Broncos' system. Uh, Okay, yes, but Terrell Davis could get 2,000 yards of the Parker system, right? So Elliott is like that, right? Anybody can run behind that line, but not everybody is going to do as well as Elliott behind that line.
2: So how do you see – again, we're talking to Aaron Schatz, creator of footballoutsiders.com, uh, writes regularly for ESPN Insider and ESPN the Magazine. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a, co- a question for Aaron about the NFL, please call us at one 844 Wharton. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Aaron, let me ask you as well, just a follow-up to that. Um, what do you see as we get more and more sophisticated data – and more and more analytics and metrics in the NFL. The exact question you tried to ask, which is, in some sense, how much value above replacement does – Zechel Elliott have above a Darren McFadden or even the average player. Do we have a hope of getting that really well quantified in the future, or as you said, this is just one of those things? There's two, as I like to say, when you have 22 players on the field at the same time, there's way too many. I'm I'm not into measuring 22 way interactions in mathematical models. It's really hard to do, and this is kind of one of those unknowables. Or do you see us making progress?
1: Well, progress, but not perfection. It's never going to be the kind of Discrete one-on-one matchups that you have like in baseball right so but there, there i'm sure somebody's going to have some breakthroughs with that video tracking data the chips that they now have in player paths where they it's really remarkable you can see uh, a diagram of players on the field you can measure things like the exact amount of separation at the moment of a throw between the receiver and the Defensive back covering him, and then the amount of separation at the moment of the catch. Uh, there you can measure just who beats their block, uh, and you don't have to watch it on video and mark things down. The chips track it for you. The problem is it's almost too much data, and teams don't even have all of it. It's kind of remarkable to me, but that data is shared with teams right now. They only share the data. For that team, which means that you can't track how much separation a receiver has from the defensive back, because if you are the team on offense, you don't get the data for the defensive back.
3: That's ridiculous, basically. Very strange. Um, The
1: NFL has this belief, like, if we share the same data with all 32 teams, some teams might get an advantage. Okay, yes, but they're not getting an advantage because of the data, because you're sharing the same data with all 32 teams. They're getting an advantage because they have smarter people. That's no different from having an advantage because you have smarter coaches or a smarter quarterback.
3: Yeah, so I, I assume this that that kind of insanity is relatively temporary. And, and, and you know, I, I'm... <laughs> I'm, I'm hopeful five to six years from now, we, we do sort of see, you know, kind of like basically kind of systems like are already hitting the forefront in basketball where you can go essentially second by second or microsecond by microsecond and actually evaluate the relative contribute, like in a great passing play like the one you're describing, you can evaluate the relative contributions of the quarterback versus receiver in that play.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would love to see the NFL be as forward-thinking as the NBA about this, but maybe it's going to take some more time before. That's why it's called forward-thinking.
2: There we go. So let me, Aaron, let me ask you a few other questions as well. So we have a season right now where, you know, we're in the era of the, I'll call it the old quarterback. So you have to explain this to our listeners, explain this to everybody here on Wharton Moneyball. Like, So when most people list the best quarterbacks in the league, the youngest one they mention, is the spring chicken Aaron Rodgers, who's only thirty three years old? But people, of course, list Tom Brady. Last time I checked, I think he's forty. People list Philip Rivers, who he might say he's only thirty eight or nine. It seems like the guy's at least fifty. You know, Eli Manning. <laughs> Eli Manning. <laughs> no, I'm just nah, no, Eli, not Eli. I, well, I know how much you like Joe Flacco. Yeah, um, jeez, uh, not him. But either way, launch uh, it down the field and hope for pass
3: or interfe- interse- interference. Interference. That's yeah. like the Flacco uh, special. There
2: we go. But so, Aaron, can you tell us what? have people that study football all the time. How does How is this? Because I don't remember this as a kid. Maybe it's nutrition. Maybe it's training. But it seems like, you know, people are lasting longer and longer in the NFL. And how are you thinking about it?
1: First of all, Philip Rivers only seems like he's fifty years old because he has like a
2: hundred and thirty-seven children.
3: <laughs> so <laughs> he's also been really healthy. That guy is uh, remarkably uh, healthy. Remarkably, he he has not missed a lot of games in his career.
1: Well, yeah. What's remarkable is the Chargers have so many injuries; they're near the league leaders in injuries almost every year, and they all happen all around Philip Rivers, but never to him. Yeah. Um, you know why are Older quarterbacks so successful. It is hard to answer that question. There are a couple of possible answers. One is that we just so happen to get a a pack of great quarterbacks all at the same time. You know, and it's a bit of a historical aberration that. You've got Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, and Drew Brees all at the same
2: time. By the way, Aaron, just to interrupt you, I wanted you to get to your other answers, but I, it's really important that our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball heard your answer, and here's why. Most people that don't study this, love to go to a more complicated answer as their, I'll call it their default answer. How about the possibility that just by random chance, there happened to be three or four quarterbacks who came into the league at the same time? I mean, to me, the reason I love your answer is that should be, in what we call in statistics, that should be your strong no. And unless you've got evidence to suggest that that's not the reason, you should go with the one that, you know, rare things just happen sometimes.
1: Right. I mean, I think the lesser question, I think the why were these quarterbacks so great is the random chance that we just got that amount of greatness in the, in a sort of compact amount of time. I think then the other side of the question is why aren't the youngsters coming up to be greater than that? Uh, Because you, you know, why are old players not declining as much and why are the youngsters not coming up? And there could be something for the idea that training, uh, you know, methods have advanced to the point where players can play later into their careers. Certainly, there is a lot written about Tom Brady's play, uh, training methods. Uh, and that could be a reason why players like uh, Breeze and Brady are succeeding even into their late 30s, whereas great quarterbacks of the past were usually done by the age of 35. As far as why we have not seen success from the young quarterbacks, it is, it is, it is really hard to say – There are some people who talk about the college game and the move to the the spread offenses. And more important than the spreading of the spread offenses are the lack of reads of defenses in the spread offenses. It's not the spread part of it that makes it difficult to transition to the NFL. Is that causing uh, more difficulty for quarterbacks coming into the league? Well, there, there have always been different offenses in college, right? I mean, there were option options for years and so option quarterbacks would not become quarterbacks in the nfl but there were still some teams in college that would run nfl offices and send quarterbacks into the league and so i don't quite know how much that's changed there also seems like we got one of those historical groupings of great quarterbacks in 2012 the problem is we haven't gotten any great ones in any other year And one of the three from 2012 went out and broke himself at the end of the year and was never the same, and that's Robert Griffin. I mean, Andrew Luck and Robert Griffin were historically great quarterback prospects when you look at both scouting and statistical analysis, and Griffin was fabulous as a rookie. And then injuries, and then he was never the same.
2: How Given I'm a, bu- given I'm a Buccaneers guy, any thoughts about whether we'll see, we'll, we'll, in two or three years, we'll be saying, wow, you that quarterback class of Jameis Winston and Mariota? What's your prospects on the two of them?
1: Well, I should mention, by the way, the other guy from 2012 is Russell Wilson. And Andrew <clears throat> Luck and Russell Wilson are among the best quarterbacks in the league right now. No Those doubt are about the it. Two young, young guys that are up I think there's a reasonable possibility we're going to see that with the class that had Winston and Mariota. I'm a big Mariota guy. I think Mariota is underrated in part because the Titans are a little bit less talked about than other teams. Winston would almost fall in the same category until they did Hard Knocks, but he was kind of a star of the show. Um, Winston is a little... Uh, his track record from an analytical point of view, you know, his, his the metrics don't come out quite as well on Winston as they do on Mariota, but we, we definitely could see those guys rise up. It, it's not like Tom Brady was Tom Brady in his first year or two. He was a nothing in his first year. In his second year, they won the Super Bowl, but people thought he might be like a system quarterback. He was kind of helped along by the defense. Offensively, he didn't become Tom Brady, quote unquote, you know, until like his fourth or fifth
2: season so you do have to give guys time to develop I'm still going with he's a system quarterback until anyone oh, tells come me otherwise on. if it weren't for Bill Belichick where would times he's just a system quarterback I'm joking Well, here's
1: one of the great questions by the
2: way yeah one of the
1: great questions is what would Belichick have done without Brady and what would Brady have done without Belichick yeah now, I mean no, no evidence of the latter and the former it's kind of hard to blame Belichick for the The Cleveland Browns. Yeah, they decided to move cities. Yeah,
2: Yeah. the other thing, the other thing, of course, is you know people always like to point to the season where Brady, you know, obviously got injured, and they went eleven and five with you know you, Aaron, you and I were playing quarterback for the Patriots that season, and so you know essentially, and the Patriots still. A lot of people like to point to that season and say you know Belichick is so great you could put any quarterback back there. But again, I'll go back to your point. You can put anybody behind the Broncos' offensive line to run for 1,000 yards. Let's see them actually run for 2,000. You can put any quarterback in the Belichick system. Maybe they go 11-5, and 5, which didn't even make the playoffs that year. But let's see them win the Super Bowl. So I, I think-, think
1: that is good evidence for Belichick, though. And so is last year, the fact that they went 3-0 with the backup and then the third stringer before the third stringer hurt his thumb and they lost a the game when their third string quarterback couldn't throw the ball.
3: Right.
2: Either way, I'm not that interested. So, Aaron, we only have about two or three minutes left with you. Um, as you look forward to the season, what are you seeing? Like, which of the teams do you think have been overvalued? Which of the teams do you think have been undervalued in the NFL?
1: Um, I think the biggest move this year that people don't talk about is Wade Phillips going from the Denver Broncos to the Los Angeles Rams. It's very rare to have a coach where you have enough of a uh, of a of a history of a coach changing teams to know that a specific coordinator has an effect on the teams that he joins because usually a coach will only start with a new team two or three times. But Phillips has been on, like, eight different teams, and every one of them improves on defense, usually dramatically. So it's one of the reasons we think the Rams are going to be much better than people expect. Their offense is still going to be hideous, but the defense could be the best in the league. They have great special teams. They could be, like, a seven and nine. If the offense actually gets its act together, they're playoff contenders. And the Broncos are going to be worse than people think because their offense isn't very good.
3: And, yeah, they've been riding that defense for years, and that defense is— it's
1: very rare for a defense to be at a legendary level like that for more than two years in a row. And the fact that they lost their coordinator is just one of the numerous reasons to believe that Denver's defense will be very good but not— legendary like it has been the last couple of
2: years. Yeah, I've always, I've always made the uh, relationship, since I'm a Buccaneers fan, between I, the Broncos of the last three or four years kind of remind me of the Buccaneers during their heyday. You got one Super Bowl, the defense basically carried the team, but it's not happened for six, seven straight years. It's just not.
1: Yeah, and last year's uh, Broncos do sort of resemble in many ways the 2003 Bucks. Who The defense was still really strong, but they lost games close, and the offense kind of crumbled a bit. And, and, and yeah, there really have not been a lot of defenses that have, have played at such a ridiculously high level for more than a couple of years in a row. I will give you a stat from our, our Football Outsiders Almanac, the book that we do each year, which people can buy now on our website and on Amazon which is uh, Denver has reached a pass defense rating of 20% better than average, right, for the last couple years. In the last 30 years, there's only one pass defense that's been 20% better than average for more than two years in a row, and it was Tampa Bay five straight years. Wow. From 1999 to
3: 2003. As
2: I said, they remind me of the Buccaneers. <laughs> that's what I was, I was saying. I feel like, I mean, and
3: again, this, so you, you could give me the basis. Seattle, are they— In that same class? Close to it. Mm -hmm.
2: okay,
1: Close to it, but not quite as good against the pass for as long, but better against the run. One of the interesting things about the Broncos' defense is that it collapsed against the run last year. And normally run defense correlates better from year to year than pass defense. And it's a better predictor of future defensive performance than pass defense. There's more variation in pass defense. And that's another little bit of a warning sign for the Broncos defense for this year.
2: Well, Aaron, we'd like to thank you for joining us this morning on uh, Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking to Aaron Schatz, uh, creator of FootballOutsiders.com, a number of advanced NFL metrics. You can find this stuff, uh, ESPN Insider and ESPN the Magazine. Aaron, thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, Shane, I don't know about you. But, I'm, I mean, I'm now even more excited I'm, I'm for so tomorrow night's for game. Season, yeah, I can't definitely. wait for tomorrow night's game. I may have to decide between watching that and tennis, but that's my problem, not yours. This has been one half of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, please join us after the break. where We're going to talk NCAA football with Bill Conley. Stay with us here on Wharton Moneyball.
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio,
2: Sirius XM 111. Welcome back here to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. We're here some combination of myself, Shane, Adi Weiner, and Cade Massey. We're here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. You can also listen to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can listen to a podcast of our show, and, of course, you can... Uh of course, call in and call us at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 942 7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And thank you for all of the people that are participating on our polls uh, through our Twitter feed at W Moneyball. So, Shane, we just spent the last half hour talking to Aaron Schatz about the NFL, but let's also remember something that started last weekend. It's for many really people, even more exciting, of college football. maybe That's more right. exciting, is college football. So we're now joined, we're lucky to be joined, by Bill Conley of SB Nation. You can find his written work at Rock M Nation, Football Outsiders, Football Study Hall. You can also listen to his very well-known podcast, Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. And of course, you can follow Bill on Twitter at SBN underscore, looks like, B-I, Bill C., Uh, s at sbn underscore bill c so bill welcome to wharton Moneyball this is eric bradlow and i'm here this morning with my co-host shane jensen thanks for having me it's great to have you here bill especially given you know we've obviously a week into the ncaa football season um let me get right off the bat and start as kind of looking back to last week what would you say were the best performances of the weekend
0: You know, it's almost boring to say Alabama, but Alabama's defense uh, just did the boa constrictor thing against Florida State. You know, Florida State had a couple, a little bit of passing success early, and then Alabama just said, "You're done," and that was that. And and you know, the fact that they were able to beat maybe the second best team in the country by 17 points with no offense. Uh, was, is absurd. So, uh, you have to put them pretty much at or near the top of any impressive performances list because of the quality of opponent there. Although that quality will now probably regress a little bit without, uh, DeAndre Francois at Florida State. But otherwise, I mean, everybody, all, all the top teams did exactly what they should do for the most part. USC struggled a little bit more than we would have maybe expected. Uh, but Ohio State, Clemson, LSU, Oklahoma, Auburn, uh, Michigan against Florida, Penn State, uh, even Stanford if you want to include them from the week before. Everybody looked the part so far, and that's kind of interesting. That sets up some really interesting matchups over the next few weeks.
2: So from a, since we're a statistics and sports show, how can you answer the following question, Bill? I'm sure many of our listeners on Wharton Moneyball would like to know this. How about the possibility that maybe – I'm just making this – I don't actually believe this, but I just want to hear your thoughts on this. Maybe FSU's just not that good. Maybe – you say Alabama won by 17 against maybe the second-best team in the nation. Well, maybe those are the priors based on recruiting class, based on last year. How can you refute the possibility when a great team or a team beats another team, maybe the other team's not that good? I, you know, that's always a, a
0: conceivable uh, possibility. And like I said, now that Francois is injured, they probably. They're not going to look very
3: uh, good regardless. That's right. So, yeah, but that I meant the team that
2: took the field. How do we know that FSU. Just is just, obviously, I'm not just pinpointing Alabama FSU game last weekend. When you're early on in an NCAA season, how do people like yourself, who study this all the time, who obviously publish stuff, write stuff all the time, football outsiders, et cetera, SB Nation, how do you think about like the possibility that maybe this team's just not as good as we thought?
0: uh by having very good projections i would say that's probably the best way to to go about it they're always incorrect uh t you always get some teams incorrect at the beginning of the year uh but just you know the you know, the, the early performance just last week of, of the S&P Plus, my rankings, those projections versus Vegas' projections uh, kind of killed Vegas this first week out. So, um, I mean, that, that made me pretty confident in how S&P kind of views the landscape at the moment. But generally speaking, that's, that's it. You just try to uh, create the best possible projections uh, and, and tweak every single year. I'm, I'm an endless tinkerer uh, to figure out the best way to create those projections, and then you phase them out slowly over the course of six or eight weeks. Uh, And then you've got the, you know, hopefully enough of a sample uh, to to have a good read from that point forward.
2: Bill, since we're an analytics show here, could you tell us, um, you know, without giving away the secret sauce, basically how you do your projections? Like what's the let's talk about a couple things. One is what's the data that goes into it? And two, essentially, how do you forecast? Let's call them team strength parameters or how good teams are.
0: So basically, there are three sections to this and i and I, each off season 'll I'll do lengthy posts about each uh, at s b nation but um the the first part is basically recent history. You know, weighted towards last year, but really over the last two, three, four, five years, uh, the the best possible predictor of future college perform uh, college football performance is past college football performance, uh, and that goes for like a hundred years, not just uh,
2: five. Unfortunately, but, um, that's something at the beginning of every season we get to observe. So this isn't unobservable. We wish we had that data. We actually have that data.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and so um, you know, there's a weighted history aspect to it, and that's a big part of it. Uh, And then from there, you basically you make two, uh, you add two extra pieces of data. Number one is what I call returning production, which isn't just returning starters, uh, but it's looking at uh, the like the percentage of all sorts of different factors. uh, You know, quarterback stats, running back stats, receivers, each unit in the uh, uh, on an offense and defense. uh, There's certain extra weight given to certain areas of performance. Performance that seem to be more strongly correlated with re- improvement and regression, namely quarterback play, receiving core continuity, and defensive backfield continuity. Those three have, seem to have a lot more impact on uh, year-to-year uh, moving up and down. So, so just to be
2: clear, every team in your SB Nation ranking, every team is literally scored on those dimensions as right. well.
0: yeah. I mean, I, I go through, I mean, with every single player, uh, are they back or are they not back, uh, and create a returning production figure from that. And then the last piece. It's it's the smallest piece of the equation, but it it is recruiting rankings. It's a a two-year recruiting ranking uh, average that's basically set up to... Uh, basically, you know, okay, so you lost X percent of your production from last year. What's the caliber of the athlete replacing that production? That's the that's the general sentiment there, and you end up with uh, a set of, of top 130 rankings.
2: So let me ask you a question. You just mentioned something since, you know, I've, I've been known to put a few dollars on uh, games, uh, by the way. By the way, no thanks to Louisville this weekend. I, I had the first three teams, right, of a four-team parlay, but no thanks to Louisville. But let's ignore that for just a second, because that's not what we're here to talk about on Morton Moneyball. Um, could you talk to me about, you mentioned that you did well compared to Vegas. I mean, a lot of our listeners are probably saying, so how can you do that? Because the data you have is the same data Vegas has. Um, obviously, they have lots of bets and wisdoms of the crowd and all of that kind of stuff. How can someone think about, it's not just outperforming Vegas, but if one wanted to come up with a system that has reasonable out-of-sample predictive validity, how could one think about doing something that maybe there are arbitrage opportunities?
0: Uh, you know, I mean, I, I that's I, it's, what's funny is there's, a, what is it called, prediction tracker, prediction I think it's prediction tracker, um, that lists just every single computer ranking that submits a a formula. And it's funny, if you start looking into the background of each one, a lot of them perform pretty well, and every single one of them comes from a different angle. So, I mean, I think there are a lot of different ways. You're basically just trying to measure performance versus expected performance. Uh, and, and that's with college football, especially, uh, even compared to NFL, or especially compared to NFL, uh, the just the pure difference in schedule strength from team to team means that piece becomes very important, and there are millions of ways to adjust for opponents. So uh, you can get really creative with it. I What I like about S&P Plus, the, my, the system I created, is it doesn't just look at scores. It doesn't look at points uh, scored and allowed. It doesn't just look at yards uh, gained and allowed. It goes down to the play-by-play level, looks at you know, play-for-play efficiency and uh, you know factors for all the other things that win football games, explosiveness and field position and all these other things. But basically, what I tried to create was a measure that is predictive, you know, beats Vegas on average. Sometimes it has really good years. I think two years ago it hit like 54 55% against the spread. Last year it barely eked over 50%, had a bunch of close games go the wrong direction. But just generally speaking, I figure if I can get over 50% against Vegas, then I have justification for using these tools that I have, the rushing rankings and all the different unit rankings and dialing in on all these other stats. Then I've kind of justified its its validity to use in that uh, for, for my rank. Writing and analysis,
3: Bill. This is uh, Shane Jensen. You've kind of uh, picked, <clears throat> put forth a landscape where there's a lot of different projection systems out there, all of which you know differ in quality, obviously, but all of which kind of are built on different things and contribute a, a come come at it from a different direction. Has there been much thought about kind of? A, Producing an ensemble of those projection systems, because, because certainly in statistics in general, we sort of observe that ensemble methods often outperform individual methods. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, I'm actually uh, different, Massey, but there's a uh, the massing the Massey composite um, basically tries to do that. It's the same kind of deal as the prediction thing where if you submit it, they'll post it. I, I don't, I'm I, I'm not organized enough to submit mine. I don't think I'm on this list here, but basically there are something like fifty or so. Uh, computer rankings that are derived from really super complicated methods and really super simple methods, uh, and you know they must be valid because they all have Alabama number one.
2: Uh, there we go. <laughs> there we go. So we're talking to Bill Conley. A are tough questions. Yeah. yeah, we're talking to Bill Conley of SB Nation. Uh, you can find his written work at Rock M Nation, uh, Football Outsiders, Football Study Hall. You can also listen to his podcast. Podcasts ain't played nobody. And of course, you can follow Bill on Twitter at sbn underscore Bill C. And again, this is Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow. I'm here this morning with Shane Jensen. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Bill about the NCAA, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Bill, before we get to next week's game, this week's games, of which there are some big ones, I want to talk about a couple other games last week and ask you if we'll ever see something like this again. So I think you know where I'm going. Howard (laughs) beat UNLV. They were the largest underdog in the history of apparently uh, sports betting where the underdog won, a 45-point underdog. Liberty also beat Baylor, which was in the top ten. I think it was number four or five. Um, how can you explain that? And will we ever see something like this again?
0: I I saw that, and if if the lines against FCS opponents are going to be more widespread uh, now, I, I, they you know before this year, I've never really seen. or You, you rarely see upsets in that in that vein where uh, you know an fcs team was an x-point underdog you don't usually see that it's hard to find those lines if those become more available then you can make a lot of money on those lines because they're terrible lines i had baylor projected to win by 28 uh which is still a lot but it wasn't uh you know 30 whatever i had unlv projected to win by 21 not 40 whatever that was 45 that was yeah 45 of by the way
2: i'm with you bill i didn't see that 45 point line before the game i only saw it listed after the game was over yeah.
0: No, I, I don't know where that came from. I don't know uh, why it existed, but it was not the biggest upset. Anybody beating, like, I would have only taken UNLV over Las Vegas Bishop Gorman High School by about 30 points. Like, there's no reason for UNLV to have been favored by that much. But if those lines are available, start looking at them because you can probably make a lot of money on them. They're pretty terrible lines. But, but to your point, I mean, number one, Howard had a, a new quarterback that was pretty hard to, uh, you know, a, a Newton, no less. Yep. And he, they're pretty hard to, uh, they kind of changed everything up, and UNLV just couldn't catch. Up once they were you know behind the play calling I guess was allowed them to stay ahead. But then um, as far as Liberty goes, they got really super lucky with some bounces. Their turnovers luck was I think was something like three. Uh, they had three more. Uh, they were plus three in the turnover margin compared to where they should have been, uh, which is probably about 15 points right there. So those kind of upsets happen. The the Howard UNLV thing was a little weirder, but it also shouldn't have been nearly as big of an upset as, it, as it's been labeled to be.
2: So the last game I want to talk about going backward looking for last weekend before we move on to next weekend's games is which UCLA is the real one do you think Uh, is it the one that was down 44 to 10 or the one that won the game I think the final was 45 44 so it which which is the real UCLA and is you know I want to ask besides that I have to ask my question Shane I'm sorry I got to ask Bill who's an expert on this is there any momentum That comes out of that game because everybody knows I'm a momentum guy and I've been uh, insulted by three fellow statisticians for the last three plus years. Eric, there's no such thing as momentum. And if it is, it's tiny. But who's the real UCLA and is there (laughs) momentum?
0: So, UCLA over the last year, well, now year and one game, has been very, very frustrating to watch because they had an offensive system that was kind of perfectly devised for Josh Rosen's talents, uh, and then they pushed that offensive coordinator out because Jim Moore wanted a pro-style guy. Uh, and so he, he brings in, uh, what was it, two so- I think, who had no offensive coordinator experience but promised hard-nosed play, and their run game was maybe the worst in FBS at any level last year. So then they come out this year with Jed Fish, who's uh, kind of a power – you know, he was Jim Harbaugh's guy at Stanford and Michigan, power run if you can do it. They tried to run that kind of square peg offense early in the game, and it was terrible – uh, and then you know, so Rosen's throwing on third and long every single time and getting lit up. And then once they were down 34 points, they decided, hey, let's just let, we're, we're just going to air it out. We're going to go hardcore tempo. We're going to air. We're just going to throw and throw. We're going to use unique uh, matchup advantages. We're going to actually try to maximize the talent we have. As amazing as that sounds. So to your question, if that's the UCLA that emerges from this, the one uh, that forgets these stupid guys of pro style, whatever, and just tries to win games with good matchups and a quarterback who could, uh, you know, who can throw at all sorts of different passes, keep pressure off of them a little bit early on in, in the down and distance, if that's the team that emerges, then that whether you call that momentum or something else, they, if they found themselves and they stick to that, that could be a really interesting team to watch this year. If they turn right back around and try to go power running, that net, what is it? San Jose State is next. Uh, they'll probably get away with it against them, but the schedule picks up real fast. So it, I, I, to your, I, I think it just depends on the lessons they learn here, and and it's hard to know what that's going to be in advance.
2: So. What other teams caught your eye last week that, or let's call it this way given the ratings that you create, what teams caught your eye as being positive and negative deviations from what you expected?
0: You know, I think one of the things that I try to emphasize, and, and uh, you know, I use FCS games uh, in my ratings, and I don't think everybody does. Uh, you know, I try to figure out the best way to, to kind of quantify the quality of those teams and use that data because we only have so much data. But What that means is early in the year, if you really, really just destroy in every possible way, if you look per- pretty much perfect against an FCS opponent, no matter how overwhelmed, you can move up in the rankings. And I, that's one thing I – uh, you know, I think you can prove yourself every single week. So teams like Mississippi State, uh, Washington State, Wake Forest, maybe Army, for that matter. Uh, you know, a lot of them just completely and totally handled their business in a way that I think uh, bodes well for them moving forward. Not as a, a national title contender or anything like that, but just in terms of you know trying to maneuver through this giant, crowded middle of college football, I think being able to handle your business the way Washington State and Mississippi State did says something. Meanwhile, Iowa, I thought Josh Allen was just terribly overrated this offseason. How he became a top draft, uh, uh, draft prospect after one solid but, not, but mistake-prone year at Wyoming blew me away But regardless, uh, they've got a pretty good offense, and Iowa completely destroyed them, and I think that probably bodes well for them in the the Big Ten West as well.
2: What are you thinking about the Big Ten this year? And then I'll transition to the upcoming games this weekend. I mean, we have obviously... Penn State in the Big Ten, obviously. We have Ohio State in the Big Ten. We have Michigan in the Big Ten. We have Wisconsin in the Big Ten. So what are your – I may have even left out another great team in the Big Ten or potentially a great team. How do you see the Big Ten sorting itself out and is basically most of the power in the Big Ten East? And, you know, you know uh, they're, it's as similar as last year. You're going to have someone bad coming out of the Big Ten West and someone good, you know, all three, three or four teams battling it out in the Big Ten East.
0: Yeah, I mean as long as Wisconsin's in the West and as long as they, you know, show the kind of fifth gear that they showed the other day against Utah State after, you know, taking the first quarter off basically, um I mean as long as they're over there and they play at the top 15 or so level that I think they can, then the West has at least one really strong team. Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, Northwestern, um, you know, all of these teams are are potentially solid top 25 to 40 level teams, but Wisconsin's obviously the standout early. But the, the way you judge the Big Ten completely depends on how you judge a conference. Are you just looking at the, the top-tier strength in a conference? Are you looking at just average from top to bottom? Because if it's the latter, Big Ten's still well behind uh, the SEC and probably the ACC because the bottom of the Big Ten is so miserably awful. Well, now, if you ha- we saw you know Rutgers the other day against Washington. Maybe that's a sign that they've stepped forward. Maybe Maryland uh, is going to be able to capitalize on, on what they, how they look for a while against Texas, even though their uh, quarterback is out now. But Illinois still looks bad. Uh, Purdue, it looks like they're going to be extremely volatile this year trying to play super aggressive and not having the horses to do it. And the bottom of the Big Ten is just so much worse than the bottom of the SEC or probably the ACC. So really, top-tier top tier talent, they've got plenty of it. It's just the bottom-tier talent, they've got a lot, too.
2: Well, as we look forward, you know, the basic college football math now is five versus four, right? There's five power conferences, there's four spots in in the college football playoff. Um, how do you see that playing out this year? And, like, which conference... Let's assume for the moment... Bill, you may disagree with this. Maybe... Let's assume no conference is going to get two teams in for the moment. Mm-hmm. Which Power Five conference do you see getting left out?
0: So, I think we, you know... It- it just depends on who we're talking about. Like, I hate gray area answers, but I really, like, we, we talk about this a lot, especially when we get to the playoff rankings later in the year. Are they going to leave the Big 12 out this year or whatever? If OU's twelve 12-0, they're not getting left out no matter how weak the rest of the Big 12 is. So, really, well, I guess what we're kind of talking about here is, is if everybody has an 11-1 and champion, um, you know, who, who kind of gets the natural uh, nod there. And it's going to be interesting because I thought heading into the year that the Big 12 was going to be significant. Well, I don't know about significantly. But most of the teams in the big 12 were going to improve this year because they were extremely young. That was we know all about the, the lack of pro talent that the conference has generated recently, but as far as the 2017 draft goes, part of that, that lack of draftable talent was that most of the team, most of the good players in the conference were underclassmen. So uh, I think the conference as a whole takes a step forward. The early play from Baylor and Texas makes me a little less confident in that, but I think Oklahoma State should be good, Kansas State should be good. And then the teams like Texas Tech and Iowa State and maybe Kansas Kansas, the 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 lower rung teams I think will improve by a decent amount. So I think the Big Twelve will be a better conference, but they were pretty far behind the field, and maybe they're just trying to aim to maybe catch up to the Pac twelve or something for fourth this
2: year. Well, let's talk since you you mentioned the Big Twelve and you mentioned Oklahoma. Let's t- let's transition now to a very big game this weekend. Obviously, Oklahoma at OSU, Ohio State. Um, it, I, on my screen, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, but I've seen this as well. They have OSU as a seven-point favorite. How do you see that game? I, I'm surprised the line's maybe not a little bit more. I know OSU handled Oklahoma pretty well last year at Oklahoma. Um, how do you see that game? And in some sense, how much will you personally and SB Nation, your rankings, update depending on, let's say, one of these two teams soundly defeats the other one?
0: Yeah, I mean, everybody, Ohio State will move into second place when the uh, I think at any minute now, the my S&P Plus rankings will go up for the week. Um, but basically, Ohio State w- is is in second right now, uh, and, and Oklahoma has moved uh, they're at six. So basically, nobody's catching Alabama just yet. Uh, but if Ohio State really does soundly defeat Oklahoma, then they can move within two or three points of the tide for first place. Uh, Oklahoma probably wouldn't fall that far in that instance. Uh, well, actually, I yeah, come to think of it, they're only two points ahead of – the 12th place team. So they could actually fall a, re- a reasonable amount in the rankings without uh, actually, you know, proving their quality to be all that awful. But regardless, I do think, I mean, Ohio State comes in here with the edge. Obviously we know Oklahoma, what Oklahoma has to offer. They're fast on defense and they're more experienced on defense. Last year, Ohio State had a pretty bad passing game, but they timed their, their game against Oklahoma really well. It was early in the year when OU was particularly dishe- disheveled in the past defense. They were able to take advantage of that two or three times. Uh, and that basically you know it happened in a pretty quick succession built a lead and then just ran out the clock basically so if OU does better early and, and is, is more equipped to handle the passing game, then in theory they can stick around for a while. They've got uh, Baker Mayfield and maybe the best offensive line in college football. That's going to win you a lot of games. The problem for them in this game is Ohio State might have the best defensive front in college football, aside from Alabama at least. And That's going to be a really interesting matchup. We're, we're going to be able to tell really quickly. If they're carving out uh, decent uh, you know, run lanes and whatnot and they're able to move, stay on schedule early against Ohio State, they might have a chance in this game but it's just hard to pick against ohio state i think
2: so you have that seven point line being fairly reasonable i mean it's yeah, not it totally like out of whack Projection
0: will be around between six and seven yeah
2: okay so certainly reasonable how about there's some other big games this weekend obviously we have uh, stanford versus usc how do you how do you see that game uh you know how good is stanford this year
0: I think Stanford could be tremendous this year. I think home field advantage will give them a slight edge in my projections. uh, But just, uh, you know, they lose Christian McCaffrey, but we saw that love kid a little bit last year, and he was awesome. Like on a per carry basis, he was better than McCaffrey, although obviously he wasn't getting as much attention when he was uh, in the game. But, um, you know, he looked dynamite against Rice. Obviously, that was a weird circumstance, and Rice could be really bad. But basically, I mean, I think they're in a situation to have a tremendous offense this year. And if USC USC was explosive in mistake per last week and that will you can survive for a while and then pull ahead of western michigan doing that but they have to if they're that volatile again they're going to get beat by stanford i really like the stanford team usc is going to have to prove itself far more than it did last week
2: so you do see the current line is usc by six and a half you see that wow I, i didn't
0: realize that yeah no i think i'll have stanford
2: projected by between
0: zero and one points
2: so you actually have Stanford as a slight favorite, where the betting line says USC as a six and a half. So you Am see I, that.
0: That game's in Palo Alto, right? No. No, I said... no it's in the Coliseum. Never mind. So no, I, then I'll, I will have um, USC by about four. Sorry. I, I was thinking that game was at Stanford.
2: But still, uh, maybe a slightly miscalibrated yes. game. And how about the last one, of course? You know, the last time I remember seeing Clemson, they were walking off the field as national champions. Um, we have Auburn at Clemson. Uh Again, maybe Auburn's. I'd be interested. Maybe Auburn's really good. Clemson is a four and a half point favorite, which seems a little bit low to me, but maybe not. Um, how do you see the Auburn Clemson game going?
0: You know, this is a great opportunity for Auburn. I think Auburn was the team that, uh, you know, I saw some hype building, especially for Jared Stidham, the Baylor transfer quarterback. And I just instinctively will always try to tap the brakes on transfer hype. Uh, but this one, it was hard not to because Auburn basically had a quarter, a healthy, confident quarterback for about a month last year. And they were – dynamite during that month. They That was when they beat Arkansas like 56-3. to They destroyed everybody in their path, then Sean White gets hurt, uh, and they completely fall apart offensively. Well, now Sean White's the backup. They've got their but most of their offensive talent back. Uh, now a better quarterback than Sean White, and, and if Stidham gets hurt, you've got a healthy Sean White replacing him. That sounds like a really good situation. So this is a nice proving ground for Auburn. They uh, just erased Georgia Southern last week. Allowed like 78 total yards. Uh, they handled Clemson's offense pretty well last year. They're going to be able to confuse Kelly Bryant a lot more than he was confused by Kent State and that's going to be you assume Clemson has the edge here because I mean because well because they're Clemson they've proven that they deserve the edge but it's, I, I really think Auburn's got a chance here I'll be disappointed if they don't uh, at least go down to the wire
2: could you also tell us you just mentioned injuries and you know it's obviously there were some bad injuries you mentioned FSU's quarterback last week how do sophisticated rating models like yours at SB Nation and others utilize injuries and how does it take something like that into account?
0: They they just don't. It's 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 an honest answer. 130 teams you know it was I just made the conscious decision. Like, I mean, I've kind of – over time you can derive like a quarterback injury is worth X points, and I know handicappers will then do that. They'll have a base set of, rank, of ratings, and then they'll adjust based on injuries. But with 130 teams, knowing that I won't be able to keep up with all the injuries regardless, uh, I just basically lay the numbers out there and, say, and then just point out, you know, hey, this one might be high, this one might be low, uh, and, and, and I just go with that.
2: So let me ask you another question. It relates to, you know, we've always talked here on Wharton Moneyball about, you know, the beauty of baseball from long time. There's always been, like, the box score in baseball that you can read. Do you see something like that progressing or us progressing towards that in football? Like, to me, like, the box score in football, if you'd like, just it just never seems to tell the story as far as I can tell. Do you see us ever getting to a place where a reasonable— summary of a game can be described in a way that, you know, if I didn't watch the game, I could get a reasonable sense of what happened in the game.
0: You know, I think there's been a better emphasis on per-play yardage. I think that's a, that's a step. Um, it's harder to find a box score that doesn't have that, especially online. Um, yeah, the old newspaper box scores that just had, like, yards and first downs and penalties and fumbles or whatever really didn't tell much of the story. But I think it tell, it gets you about two-thirds of the way there, especially if you're looking at those that per-play yardage. So you can tell really quickly, you know, uh, what was it, Tennessee – versus Georgia Tech the other day. Georgia Tech had nearly double the yardage, but yards per play was like 6.6 to 6.1 or something. So, uh, it kind of hones you into reality a little bit. But in my first book, uh, the study hall, I, I talked a little bit about, you know, what could they add to the box score to just make it better? I think first thing would be that third down conversions thing that we, we always see. They were three for 14. Uh, having either a, an average yards to go or average yard gained on first down. I think either of those would be very good and very descriptive and. And, and, and it would tell you a lot about how they failed. Uh, that would be a very important thing. And honestly, I mean, if, if we're if I'm designing the box score from scratch, I'm squeezing success rate in there. I stole that from Aaron Schatz years and years and years ago and used it for college, and I think it's the single most – It it, it adds something to the the stats that you just don't get anywhere else. That on-base percentage kind of look at play-for-play proficiency is so important.
2: By the way, just because I don't know this metric, and by the way, you you may not know, we just had Aaron shots on literally in the last half hour. Aaron was our guest from 8.30 to 9 o'clock this morning on Wharton Moneyball. Um, What is success rate? How is that exactly measured? So
0: basically it's a different definition for college, but basically the idea is you're getting fifty percent of your yardage on first down, seventy uh, percent on second down, and one hundred percent on third and it just really it averages out over the course of a year to about forty three percent and you can kind of just t- you, you, uh, once you've seen it a few times, you can start to figure out you know because that per play yardage is great, but if you gained eighty yards on one play and then one on the next nineteen plays, uh, your per play yardage wasn't terrible, but you were going three and out repeatedly so Having some sort of efficiency aspect, just looking at how successful you were at staying uh, on schedule—that's that, so important and so vital to storytelling uh, when, when it comes
2: to football. So, Bill, let me as, let me ask you maybe one last kind of set of questions um, as we look forward. Let's imagine it's five years from now. We're still doing Wharton Moneyball, Bowl. You're still doing SB Nation. All the things that you've been doing. I think both of those are highly likely. If we're sitting here five years from now and we're talking about analytics and its application to whether it's college football. Pro football, etc. I can imagine three areas where things could change, and if you want improve, one could be um, there are better people in it. In other words, it's become just much bigger because of the people. Another could be the data has gotten much better, or another could be you know we're now applying more sophisticated mathematical models to the data. Which of those three areas, as you think about analytics going forward, is it the people? Is it the math or is it the data? Which of those do you see as the greatest area of potential improvement going forward?
0: I, I think, especially at the pro level, I think the math is catching up in a hurry. Uh, and, well, and honestly, the pool of data is, too. I think both of those things are good. In theory, if you've got those and you're proving you can use them correctly, then the people are improving, too. So I think at the pro level, maybe it all works. The college is always more, is it, it, just, a, it's weirder basically, you know, when you talk about how the head coach is also the general manager and the analytics director and uh, 38 other roles, but it's really interesting with college football right now. Number one, there are a lot of companies that are trying to kind of get in the door when it comes to uh, play calling tendencies and, and, you know, kind of recommendations for the tactical aspect of the game, and I think a lot of teams have proven, you know, well, we'll listen, yeah, we'll pay you know, $5,000 or whatever for this just to make sure we're staying on the cutting edge or whatever but I do think with the this uh, there's the player tracking data and all these other pieces of data number one the data will improve for college football and it already is but number two the teams that can figure out the people side of that and figure out the best way to utilize that are going to find an advantage for at least a while and and I think five years from now you'll see certain teams uh, you know whether it's the analysts that they hire all the power conference teams have like 38 analysts now because they can't pay their players so they have to spend that money somehow uh, you know and but I, I think the teams that figure out the math side of that will have at least a little bit of an advantage not only from the play calling and the tactical side of things, but everything, you know, the recruiting side, uh, the development side, all these areas for improvement or slight improvement if you've got good math on your side. I think you'll see some teams figuring that out.
2: So, Bill, maybe our last question since we only have about a minute left. What game are you looking at of all the games? I mean, I mentioned three games, Auburn, Clemson, Stanford, USC, Oklahoma, OSU, but as I said, you know, I hate to say it, You can just look at the rankings. Any fool or idiot like me can pick those games. (laughs) Which games are you looking at to see like a surprise or anything that you're looking at? Well, that'll be interesting.
0: Well, I don't think people are quite taking Auburn seriously enough just yet. We remember last season's collapse. We remember a couple of collapses from recent years. And I think we're kind of penalizing them for that to a certain degree. And maybe that's justifiable, but I'm really interested in seeing what Auburn does. Not necessarily Clemson. I think I know Clemson. Uh but I think Auburn it'll be a very interesting team to watch. I think TCU Arkansas will be very telling. TCU looked great, but again, it was against Jackson State, but it, it, they could be a Big 12 contender if they play, uh, you know, and they have a chance to show that by playing well against Arkansas, but, so that's a game to pay attention to. Uh and then just for the history, for the Herschel Walker and the Sugar Dome aspect, Georgia versus Notre Dame is going to be a lot of fun.
2: Well, Bill, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking to Bill Conley of SB Nation. You can find his written work at many places, Rock M Nation, Football Outsiders, and Football Study Hall. And, of course, you can listen to his podcast. Podcast ain't played nobody. So, Bill, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball this morning. Thank you. So this has been the first three quarters of our show. we got a half hour to go, which means I'm going to want to talk to, about tennis with my colleague Shane Jensen. So lots to go. Please join us here after the break. Welcome back to a Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. Uh, This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm joined by my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. And thanks to our associate producer, Danielle Bruno, for playing music now from my era. This is a song I even recognize. So thanks to Danielle for that. And of course, we've had a great hour. We've uh, had Aaron Schatz joining us, talking about uh, the NFL. We had Bill Conley talking to us about college football. So this was kind of our all-star lineup as we're gearing up for the NFL season. So, Shane... Before we jump into the NFL, because, you know, we're going to have our Moneyball matchup segment. I know all of our listeners here at Wharton Moneyball. This is our first uh, week back since, you know, the NFL season started. We're going to have our Moneyball matchup segment. But I wanted to talk to you about uh, an event that's going—actually, before I get to tennis, I have a different—I have a question for you. This is a quiz, and I will bet that you will not get the answer right. And I will bet most of our listeners will not get the answer right. So this is a golf question. All right. So which golf player— this season has won a major, and has also won five times on tour. Um. There's a lot of reach you know, a lot of big name golfers. It might and it's probably one of them. Who do you think that is? Who's this person? Won a major? There's only four majors. This person won one of them, and the person has won five tournaments this year. Spieth, right? No. So it's not Speeth He would have had he won yesterday, yeah. uh, two days ago. It's actually this guy, Justin Thomas, okay. who won the PGA. He's actually been neck and neck with Speeth. He won this uh, Dell Championships. He's now got a major in five wins on the season. Speeth only has a win in four. The reason I was just pointing it out was just... It caught my eye in sports where and Dustin Johnson, of course, has, yeah. you know, is another guy that's been up there as well. and then Hideki Matsuyama didn't win a major, but he's won lots of tournaments. It goes back to something we've talked about a lot. I'm pretty sure I know who's going to win like you know, a bunch of college football games. I'm pretty sure who I know who's going to win a bunch of the NFL games, but I'm going to tell you something. This golf is a sport where you have to go <clears throat> so far down the list to know who's going to win on any given week. Yeah, no, and I mean, do do you sort of feel I mean, we've
3: discussed this over the last couple of years. Do you kind of feel like it's more wide open now than it used to be? Like or do you think it's sort of always been this way that like you kind of have to like in the Tiger Woods era, which is obviously kind of a a, a very special time for golf. What did did Tiger Woods suck up so much of the probability that you did not have to actually go to as far down the list to sort of like 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 make it make it objective? You know, how many players down the list do you have to go before you've, say, captured like 80% of the probability
2: of somebody winning? Right. I think in the Tiger Woods era, he soaked up so much probability. I mean, he was winning 30% to 40% of his starts during the peak 10-year Tiger Woods era, including, remember, he won 14 majors in basically a, let's even say a 14-year period, although it's probably less than that. But let's say it's a, well, that's one a year. And you're like, oh, well, that's 25%. So, I mean, he's soaking up a huge amount of that probability. And I think the bigger question is, you know, which one's more impressive? This is what people want to say. Tiger Woods 14, or, you know, when Jack Nicholas won 18, the question becomes, was he in a worse year? People say, well, there was Tom Watson, Mm -hmm. and there was Arnold Palmer, and there was Gary Player. But there's no way the depth of the field is the way it is today. And so I I think there's, you know, a hundred golfers who could win any particular tournament. And then Twenty years ago, thirty years ago, forty years ago, when Nicholas played, there might have been twenty or twenty-five golfers that you legitimately thought could win a major. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. So I think so. so You do
3: think things have kind
2: of changed a bit, and that and that the Tiger Woods era is relatively unique. I think that Tiger Woods era is very, very unique, and he mm-hmm. was just so – well, it's also – he was kind of basically showed players what it meant not only to play every week, no, he but brought, to he train bought, every yeah, week. Athleticism Athleti- to the sport. He brought athleticism yeah. to the sport. And now you've got guys that, you know, hit the ball 300, 320, 340. Yeah. And so, you know, Dustin Johnson being a great example of that. The guy looks like he could just swing – you know, wake up and hit the ball. You know, the tournament he won two weeks ago on the 18th uh, – in the playoff, beating – Jordan Spieth, by the way. Speeth has come up. By the way, it's another thing people forget. So I, I've said this stat many times on Wharton Moneyball. So Jack Nicholas won 18 majors the most all time. That's great. He came in second 20 times. Yeah. Okay. So Jordan Spieth, by the way, the last two weeks has come in second and second. It's really hard to win golf tournaments. It's really hard to win golf tournaments. And you know what? Most guys are a coin flip when they're that's actually yeah, what's I mean, amazing I'm, about Tiger Woods by the way. You put yourself he, in position and then, you
3: know, hopefully somebody doesn't have a hot streak on Sunday or well, whatever.
2: You know, back to the uh, the the Shane Jensen rule of the MLB, once you're one of the finest final fought eight baseball teams Coin flip. Yeah. It's a coin flip. It's really hard, even when you're in that contention. That's what actually is amazing about Tiger Woods' statistics. When he was in contention, he closed at a rate that was massive. I mean, yeah. that was the thing. He didn't win every week. But when he was close, he almost always won. Like, he's yeah. like, leading into the last round or tied or leading. He was something like, I'm going to make this up, like 33-1. and one. I mean, yeah. some unfathomably yeah, great yeah. closing number. So that I want to talk about golf. Let's also, if you don't mind, like to spend a few minutes here on Moneyball also talking about tennis because we have the U.S. Open going on right now. I think the part that's amazed me the most, I don't know if you've been following the U.S. Open that much, but for the last 10 years, let's take the women's side to start. Who's been the dominant player? Serena, Serena Williams. Williams. right? And as you know, she just had a baby. Congratulations. Yeah. She's obviously not playing in the tournament right now. So currently there are 6 players left. And the reason there it are It seems s- pretty wide open in Serena's absence. Well, that's one part I wanted to get to, but but there are 6 players left on the women's side because two of the semifinals have been decided. Do you know that 4 of those 6 players are Americans?
3: I did not know that.
2: I knew Venus was still in it. So Venus won yesterday. She beat Mm Petra Kvitova in one of the great matches of all time, by the way. That was a great match. So she's in the semifinals. Sloane Stephens beat Sevastova. So she's now in the semifinals. By the way, Venus and Sloane will be playing each other, which means there will be at least one American in the final. And Madison Keyes and Coco Vandewey are not playing each other, but they're on the other. All four... Semifinalists in the U.S. Open may turn out to be U.S. born players. Wow. Which is kind of an amazing thing. Unfortunately. Especially un- compared to the men, right? Well, Where the there's, last there's man just got eliminated of, last yeah. night. That was Sam Query, got yeah. beaten by Kevin Anderson. So no men will even get to the semifinals. So again, this is a continued bad run. I don't know. Do you know? I do. I mean, do you know who won the last U.S. man to win a major? Roddick. Andy Roddick. yeah, Ding, ding, ding. That is correct. 2003, I believe, he won the U.S. Open. So it's been a long, long time. It's It's an amazing time, though, for women's tennis in the U.S. I mean, we may end up with all four semifinalists.
3: That's pretty amazing.
2: Which is amazing. And apparently I heard last night that had not happened since 1985 when it was Chris Everett, Not surprisingly, Martina Navratilova, she was a U.S. citizen at that time. I believe it was Kathy Rinaldi, and I forget who the fourth one was, but it was someone like equally, it was like, it hasn't been done in 30-something years, which is a long time. Well, let's stop wasting time with golf. Let's stop wasting time with tennis. Tomorrow's, well, your Super Bowl was in January, but your you know, your team, the Patriots, hanging the banner t- is coming up tomorrow. And th- you know what that means here on Morton Moneyball? It means time for our Moneyball matchup segment. Omaha! Omaha!
3: <laughs> Wants to go to the end zone. He does. Moneyball matchups.
2: Well, I've missed the Moneyball matchups. I've missed the Moneyball matchups, too. (laughs) So, Shane, this is the time where each of you and I look at the different games. Uh, We pick out a game that has caught our eye, let's say, against the spread. And, by the way, um, I had the dream that the Buccaneers and Dolphins game maybe moved to Philadelphia, but I've been getting texts during the show no, they're going to play the game during the bye week, week 11. So that so do not pick the Buccaneers and the Dolphins as your game because that game is not being played this weekend, which is an interesting issue that both those teams will not be playing until week two, I guess, of the NFL season. It's kind of interesting. Um, but as you look down at the game's, what caught your eye as one of the games and and the spread? I mean, spreads. the most interesting I I don't I don't I don't think it's
3: necessarily a misaligned spread but the the Cowboys Giants game I think is probably the one that I'd pick out as like the most marquee matchup. And
2: I believe that's um, the Sunday night game, correct? Uh I think it is. Yep, yeah, Matt's that's giving right. me it's the a thumbs Sunday, up. Yep. That's Sunday, Sunday night, night game. game.
3: Yeah, that's right. Right, because there's two games on Monday night. So, um yes, so the the, the Giants Cowboys game on Sunday night I think is going to be the the most exciting game of the weekend for me. Um, just because, I mean, obviously, I think there's a lot of, I mean, both teams could be very, very good, but you can also convince yourselves that neither, for either of these two teams, that they actually aren't that great. You know, I mean, you know, the Cowboys, one might expect a, lot, a little bit of regression to the mean, um, and their defense, I think, is, is has been weakened relative to what it was last year, though the offense is still incredibly strong, um, and the Giants... did did a lot to improve their wide receivers and and stuff, but, you know, Eli is older and has not been looking very good for the last couple years, so... Yeah, yeah, I can. yeah I,
2: I, I'm i fascinated by it. And if you had, say, Cowboys minus four, any, any thoughts? I think that's about right. I mean, I, I would say, I, I think the Cowboys,
3: it's basically, I, I consider those two teams relatively equally matched. Maybe the Cowboys a little bit better just based on last year. Um, and the Cowboys are at home, I think, right? So, yeah, four, the Cow-
2: Cowboys are at home. Four points sounds about right to me. Here's the thing I think about when I think about that game. I think, I don't think there's any chance the Cowboys aren't at least a reasonable team this year. I oh, could yeah. see the Giants being a bad team. They I could, could. actually they see could it. They could be a bad team. So it's I, really I mean, all on t- Yeah, I, I, don't think, well, I don't say there's no way. I'd be shocked if the Cowboys were worse than 9-7. and seven. Mm-hmm. That, to me, yeah. is the worst case scenario. I could easily see the Giants being worse than 9-7. and seven.
3: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, uh you know, at the same time, the Giants, you know, did look pretty good last year. Um, and then and, and I had a good offseason. So, I mean, they're, they've they got the ingredients to be potentially good. But I agree. They, they haven't proven it yet, I guess, for, you know, to use kind of like sports vernacular.
2: Now, are you at all surprised? And I'll get to my Money match matchup in a second. Are you surprised at all that the largest spread of the week, the largest, is the Patriots over the Chiefs? I'm a little surprised by that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying the Patriots don't deserve their number one ranking. They do. Yeah. But, I mean, the Chiefs, I, weren't the Chiefs a good team last year?
3: The Chiefs were. They were. The Chiefs were a playoff team
2: last year. They weren't a very impressive
3: one, but they were— But they the, went at least 11-5 last yeah, year, didn't yeah, they? No, I don't remember I, their exact I'm, record. I, I'm, I'm surprised by that, too. Yeah. Um, I think if the Steelers and Browns, if the, if the Steelers were were at home to play the Browns, that would have been a bigger spread.
2: Yeah, that minus and eight that, and a half. That, you're right. That's right up there as well. I'm actually deserves, surprised. I'm actually surprised that spread's not bigger. Yeah, I
3: mean the Steelers should really beat the Browns. I mean we'll see any given Sunday and all, but I will be shocked if the Steelers struggle against the Browns. And
2: of course, the Browns have a rookie quarterback playing. I would say the game that caught my eye. As a kind of an interesting game, since you picked a game from the NFC East, I will not pick the Eagles and Redskins, although very that, is, in- that
3: should be a good game
2: that should be a very good game, interesting way to start the season I, I think unfortunately, I like the Redskins in that game. Um, the game that caught my eye were was the Raiders at the Titans, and surprisingly to me, I understand it's at the Titans, but the Titans are favored in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a little surprising. I to mean, me too. weren't people weren't, are very high, high in the Titans? I know they are, but coming into uh, the season. Chiefs, yeah, thanks, thanks, matter, Matt, our producer. I was right, uh, sort of right. The Chiefs were twelve and four last year and won the AFC West. Let's get this straight: the Patriots are a nine-point favorite against a twelve and four team to show you how much people think about the Patriots. Yeah, I mean, for you to be a nine-point favorite. And by the way, let's just say for our listeners, let's convert point spread to basically odds of winning the game. That's got to be at over eighty percent.
3: Yeah, no, I think, and, and, and I mean, I, the Patriots have to be overrated at this point, right? I mean, everybody is obsessed with just how good this team is going to be going into the season. People are starting to talk about perfectly. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm very excited for the Patriots. I always am, and they, they certainly have have, have proved, you know, earned my allegiance. But I do not think that they're going to be that good. You know, that, where, where you should be giving them close to 10-point spreads over, you know, teams that fought for the
2: bye last year. Well, that's true. So that's why, by the way, the Titans-Raiders game caught my eye. Because you would agree that—I'm not saying you were worried, but the Raiders— were on track to have home field in the AFC last year yeah, until the Derek are, Carr was injured. Yep, and, and so we have the Raiders playing against the Titans. were nine and seven. They were a pretty good team, and yeah, the Raiders were twelve and four. They lost the tiebreaker to the Chiefs, but the Raiders were on track to have home field advantage in the AFC last year. And I'm not saying the Patriots wouldn't have beaten them. That'd have been fine, but I'm just saying. It seems to me that the Titans being favored against the Raiders, that seems a little bit
3: strange to me. Yeah, no, and I I think, um, right, I I mean, the Raiders even coming into this season are, you know, one of the couple teams that are discussed as, like, you know, probably going to be, you know, I mean, going up against New England in the AFC Championship game, so...
2: So I'm just let's just maybe just quickly go down some of the other games. I mean, Jets at Bills. I mean, the Jets are absolutely putrid. <laughs> in, uh, I mean, it has uh, the Bills minus eight. I, I mean, I assume, by the way, you maybe follow this as well as I do. I assume, is Tyrod Taylor still the quarterback for the is, Bills?
3: He is, he is. I mean, I think there was a little bit of controversy because he's had a, ba- a couple bad. I mean, I was, I was actually at the, the Bills-Eagles preseason game here in, in Philadelphia, and Taylor was terrible. In that game, throw, throw, throwing picks and everything. Uh, and so I think coming out of that game, there was some at least
2: murmurs that maybe he would be replaced, but he's still in there. Do you think, by the way, just before we continue down the list of games, do you think that the first week of the season is a, I'll call it an arbitrage opportunity? Because it's basically the question I asked both Aaron and Aaron Schatz and Bill Conley. Like, do we really know how good FSU is? Do we really know how bad some of these teams are? Like, we know the Jets are bad. Yeah. Maybe the Bills are bad too. No, like, how the do Bills we, could easily be bad. Yeah, so I'm saying, is the first week this sure, opportunity I mean, I mean, I mean, where there's
3: higher variance and there? are Yeah, I mean, i mean simplistically right i mean you have zero data so there, there you've kind of ma- there's maximal uncertainty here right because uh, all you have is what they did last season plus what they did in the off season. so so what you know after the first week you actually have a little bit more data on what these teams are like you don't have much more i wouldn't necessarily update my probabilities and i doubt the really good systems update their probabilities too much based on the first week because you don't want to read too much into kind of you know some randomness of the first week um but yeah, of course of course the, the the uncertainty is the highest right now.
2: Well, I want to ask you a question about that. So, there's an academic paper, as you know, I life I love writing academic papers. There's one that I've never written but I've wanted to write. But I sort of wrote it, but it 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 was in the educational field, but it relates to football. So, let me give you the 10-second description of the paper I wrote when I worked at ETS, and then I want to ask your relation to football in our show Wharton Moneyball. So, Let's imagine I have a really smart test taker. Remember, I was working at ETS, so I'm going to use the language of ETS. We have a really smart test taker. Let's call him Shane Jensen. And I give Shane Jensen a very easy test item. And Shane Jensen gets that item wrong. Now, let me tell you, it turns out, if you do the math... The posterior uncertainty could actually go up. I see. I actually know less about you than I did before. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about football. Let's imagine the the Jets. Yeah, let's imagine. Or let's even, let's not, let's use, we were talking Jets-Bills. Let's imagine by some miracle, the Jets and the Bills are both awful. The Jets win this game. You could imagine your mean assessment of them going up, but the variance also yeah. going up. So could you talk to our listeners? Because you don't seem to say, I don't see you nodding no what you're saying, Professor Bradlow. Eric, no, is the correct. stupidest thing. So could you talk about where actually collecting data could lead to higher uncertainty.
3: Well, it's basically because, I mean, I portrayed this as sort of like, you know, the, the, the only data that you have is the actual seasonal, re- you know, in-season results. And that's not true. I, I did sort of say the other data that you have is, ha- you know, essentially a prior idea of well how good these teams are going into the season. And basically the first week adds data. So, so teams where you have no real prior idea – you know, you're you, you're very uns- prior uncertain. Those are probably go. The first week's going to be informative. You're going to be like, well, that team looks better than you know. I, I had no idea what that team looks like. Now they look good, and so I can update and probably lower my posterior uncertainty. For some teams that go in, you've got a you think you've got a good idea. Like the I guess the Jets, for example. You th- we think we've got a pretty good idea that they're bad. What if they come out and actually have a good game? then all of a sudden you've, you have data on the Jets. They've played a game, but it completely kind of goes against whatever, I, whatever certainty you had going into the season. You know what so if, that's a scenario where you could have an increase in uncertainty.
2: You know what, t- sounds? I mean, this is a technical thing. I'm not going to get too technical here uh, on the show, but just to let you know the math of it, it turns out, but this part I think all of our listeners will yeah. appreciate, if you have a unimodal distribution, meaning there's one hump, the phenomena I just said can't happen. In other words, by adding a data point, the posterior variance has to go down. The way it can increase is if there's a multimodal distribution. So what I mean by that is, let's imagine there's a possibility the jets suck, but there's also a possibility they're good, and your belief of their ability could have two humps, up, down, up, down. If you allow for multi-humps, or what's called a mixture... That's when posterior yeah. uncertainty can increase. But as long as you say that you know everything's a normal distribution, you can't get yeah, this result. I right. just want to. F- I'm just interested when really bad teams perform well or really good teams before badly and how I've much adjustment sure. I, people that fascinates
3: make. me too I, I, I hope it doesn't happen tomorrow night specifically but yeah um that really fascinates and me you know
2: well. if there was any god in this world they would allow the chiefs to beat the patriots oh. tomorrow night so I, i'm still feeling bad about that super bowl i i just i cannot tell you how much i think about i what did i lead off the show with today yeah. what if the falcons had just run the ball kick the field goal and won that super bowl i don't know why it still bothers me to this will, day
3: uh, tom brady still would have beat them. That's my statement. All right. I mean, well, there's, no,
2: there's no way of checking. Either way, you and I definitely agree in the last four Super Bowls they played, the Patriots deserved to be two and two. Oh. You could pick any two you want. The Giants won, so they could have won. People should
3: always want the Patriots in the Super Bowl. I know you guys don't. But people should always want the Patriots in the Super Bowl. It's always an exciting time. They do not... That, that Super Bowl you're talking about, that Super Bowl was the largest point margin they've ever won by. It's crazy. They always...
2: It's always exciting. So, just thirty seconds left here. One other interesting game. What do you think about Seahawks at Packers? Oh, I didn't even see that one. Oh, that's going to be a fantastic game.
3: You know that 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 one I'll definitely be tuning in for. With I,
2: tremendous I, implications, by yeah. the way, for down the road home field or you know, I doubt. Who knows? Maybe wild card. But I'm liking that's the a game I with think,
3: a I I I think the Packers are the team to beat in the NFC actually so that I think that's gonna be a fantastic game because they're going up against obviously a, a very very stout challenge there
2: well this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball this morning we're live every Wednesday morning 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern and replayed throughout the week I'm Eric Bradlow professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School my colleague and I and friend Shane Jensen have been talking two hours of statistics sports and business where all three collide I'd like to thank our two guests this morning Aaron Schatz and Bill Conley and of course thank our producer Matt Datz and our sound engineer and associate producer Danielle Bruno, um, you have so much sports and statistics over the next week. You got NCAA football. I hope everybody watches the U.S. Open tennis. You've got the NFL. All kinds of things going on. So between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics, enjoy your business. Till next week, here on Wharton Moneyball.